on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Ian McDonald has been a fan of John Barry even before the time when he became a celebrated film composer. In late 2022, he contacted Talking Soundtracks wanting to talk about his love of the music of John Barry and the stories he had in relation to his interest in the composer. In February 2023, via Zoom at his home in Bridgewater in Somerset, we did just that, as well as talking about, amongst other things, Barry's James Bond scores, his memories of the concerts he attended, and the time he met John Barry for the very first time at a recording session at Abbey Road Studios in London. We would take the opportunity to play music by John Barry, most of which has been chosen especially for the show by my guest today, Ian McDonald. Ian McDonald, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Thank you very much, Jason. It's good to be here. Now, when did you first get interested in John Barry? Well, a long, long time ago, when I was about 11 years of age, in the year 1958, I've given my age away now, but anyway, it was really based on the old rock and roll craze of the day, because there was a TV show on at the time, um, at five past six in the evening on BBC, and it was called The Six Five Special, and I, like a lot of other young kids at that time, rock and roll was in, um, and pop music was in its embryo stages, and I watched it mainly because it had steam railway and locomotives at the start, and uh, it, that's what made me watch it firstly, and I got into the music in the show, strangely enough, and there were um, several acts, like people like Laurie London and Lord Rockingham's Eleven and other guys, some of which made it, some didn't, but the one thing that made my ears pick up, as they do when you, you get uh, attracted to music, um, there was a certain band of seven musicians called the John Barry Seven, and I just liked the sound they made. And the arrangements and the compositions that John Barry made for them were very tight, very neat, very new. It was a new sound, and it just attracted me. And from that point onwards, John Barry was, in those days, looking for an in, I think, to his eventual aim to be a film score composer. And this is a way of getting into the music business. And he then got a job with EMI Records as musical director. And it was a musical director to a very big pop star of the day called Adam Faith. He made one or two number one records with him and made one quite a few albums, well, say quite a few, a couple of albums. And uh, I got very attracted to the John Barry sound. I used to like Adam Faith, but I realised very quickly that it was John Barry's unique sound that I was really attracted to. So I started to collect his stuff, and I started went out and bought um, a, a 45 record 
with some money that my grandparents had given me for my birthday. And uh, I, I went out and uh, had a, I think it was a record token they gave me. And I went out to the local record shop and I picked up this um, 45 single by the John Barry Seven called Bees Knees. So that was my first intro to, to John Barry's music. And from there it went. to me following his pop music career and following his um, many recordings with the John Barry Seven and the John Barry Seven and Orchestra, made lots of instrumental records, very, very different in style, which was a John Barry trademark in those days. There wasn't really an established sound that you would associate with one artist. He tended to change things around very frequently and he got into a Conjuring uh, up a sound that everybody called string beat, and it was very much based on the the Paddy Holly sound of uh, the the song. It doesn't matter anymore. It was around that style, around that time. Pizzicato strings, string orchestras, etc. Twang guitars played by a big flick, and there were a lot, quite a few, and quite a few of the uh, recordings that Barry made with the Seven made the charts one of which was uh, Hit and Miss, which was used later on uh, as the theme for a BBC TV show on a Saturday night called Jukebox Jury. And uh, that was a very attractive uh, instrumental, which even now sounds very fresh, very original in its style and, and everything, and it's uh, something that I still play and still enjoy.
it outlined something as well in the middle of that particular instrumental. There was a guitar lick in the middle, and it was very much more of a, a jazz guitar than a pop guitar. And it really outlined the fact that Barry, and I made it quite clear that Barry had studied jazz as part of his musical training because that wasn't strictly pop music. It was There was a theme, and then the, the, the middle part was very, very solidly guitar jazz. Uh, but it went on for various uh, different instrumentals. And, of course, it all culminated more or less in 1962 with that um, little-known theme that went to in at the start of, I mean, been included in every uh, 007 movie since 1962, a little piece of music called the James Bond theme, which, obviously, everybody knows is probably the most prolific movie theme, I think, that's probably ever been written uh, because it's lasted so long and it just doesn't sound as if it's ageing. It's a classic piece. was a story that uh, I can tell you here if you'd like to me to tell you that now 
1968, uh, there was a gentleman that worked for, or say worked for, he was the artist and repertoire manager at the uh, record label called United Artists Stoke Liberty. They were based at 37 Mortimer Street, London, West 1. I remember the address very clearly. Um, and a guy that uh, was the A&R manager there was a man called Alan Warner. Now, Alan wrote a column every month in a magazine called Films and Filming. I made contact with him because he was, he was writing a sleep notes on various albums at that time. And I made contact because at that time I used to bring up record companies to ask them if they had anything lined up for release by John Barry. And I got, it's quite a regular thing for me to ring and talk to Alan and he would tell me when the next Bond score was coming out or when there were going to be a new reissue of something. We, we got to be sort of, if you like, sort of sort of friends to some to a certain degree. And uh, one day he said to me on the phone, he said, uh, tell me, have you got all the James Bond LP? I said, yes. He said, well, I'm talking about, thinking about putting out an album of all the best bits of, from the first four or five movies. It's going to be called The Best of Bond. It did come out as an LP. It came out with a, a red cover with a lady in a, in a fedora on the front cover. And it was originally going to be put out as a as a double album. Alan was very keen on the, the, the James Bond theme and he started to tell me that he was going to do a double album and the date folder, big folder out and write a very long sleeve note. And at that time, I said, well, what, are you, "What are you going to write on the sleeve note?" And he said, "Well, I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to divulge the real story of this piece of music." I said, "Oh, that's interesting. What, what do you mean by that?" I said, uh, "Well, he said, well, I think we all learned that John Barry had more to do with the James Bond theme that he's given credit for. And what I intend to do is to write a sleeve note to tell the real story." I said, "Okay." He said, um, "Anyway, he said, can you come into the offices and bring those LPs in because I want to." use them to photograph them and he said so that I can use it as illustrations on the cover. Oh, I said, okay, yeah. So I went into the offices the following week and I said, what's this, this, this uh, um, sleeve note you're going to write then about the Bond theme? He said, well, let me show you. So he, he went to a filing cabinet in the corner, one of the old metal cabinets where uh, the drawers were essentially locked by a, a Yale lock, if you like, at the top of the cabinet. And he got out this uh, brown form folder, and then it was a very quite quite an extensive manuscript. And then when he got out, I got on the desk and said, "Here he is." And I said, "Okay." It said on the top, "The James Bond theme by John Barry," and it was the original manuscript, as written. Um, it had those alterations, scratchings out, and notes at the side, and what have you. But it, it was that, according to Alan, that was the original manuscript that Barry used to do the James Bond thing. He said, I can, I can tell you now, it is, it is the original one, he said, because it's been endorsed by the Performing Rights Society. And in those days, what they did, the composer signed it and they put a wax seal over his signature. And next to that wax seal was a number. I think it was about five digits, the number. And it was one of those, it was done by one of those machines. I hope you're all familiar with this, but one of these machines where you, you stamp something on a piece of paper, it gives a number, and then when you go to do it the next time, it's moved up one digit. And it's that sort of thing. And it was given a number. And that number was, according to that manuscript, allocated to the Performing Rights Society. So that, in, 
in not so many words, it actually, um, took, as far as Alan was concerned, it proved that that, that was John Barry's work. We did do the uh, the album. He submitted the sleeve note to the people at Eon, uh, the the powers that be at the Bond Empire. And uh, I understand that when he, when he told me the two or three weeks later, they said that oh, he said I was going to. He said they won't let me. They won't let me print it because it's um it's disclosing the fact that and that they think you know I'm saying that Bernie wrote the the Bond theme and they won't let me put it on on the LP as as a note. So we had to reduce the LP back. So we, we scaled it back to a single album. And he put a very short note on the back of it. If you see the LP, you'll see his note on the back. And it was very much pricey down from what it was going to be originally. So that was really uh, the, the end of that. Um, he was quite convinced that uh, that Barry wrote the James Bond theme. And that was that was his proof. Now, what happened a little while later, Alan was at a, at a sort of a brainwave and... Uh, he decided that he was going to launch a label called Sunset. And Sunset was a reissuing of quite a few of the soundtracks that were originally released on the DMI United Artists label in the 60s and probably early 70s. Things like uh, Six Reefs, Blaze Squadron, Baron Goldwyn, Phaedra, by Mikis Theodorakis, The Bond Fiends, Goldfinger, From Russia With Love, etc., and um, a, a few others. They were put out uh, very cheap albums in those days at 99 pence each, which uh, was a step. So uh, basically, at the time, he also had plans to put out Doctor No as a re-release. But the original album of Doctor No came out, I think, in 1965, three years after the film. And it was obviously launched because of the popularity of the preceding two or three films. So we launched this label, and uh, he had plans to re-release the, the score from Dr. No. While he was away on holiday, the lady that was his secretary, I think she was his secretary, she, she evidently told him that uh, during the time when he was away, some people came into the office who were working for Monty Norman, his agent, his agency, or whatever it was. They were connected to him. They came into the office, they, they said, to view the contract. Don't know what contract they were talking about, whether they're talking about the original contract to score the movie or the original contract to release the music. I don't know. But um, uh, they asked if he could, uh, uh, um, he come in and asked to see that contract. Now, in that folder, where that contract was, was that manuscript we've just been talking about, which was Barry's original. And uh, they inspected whatever they needed to inspect. No one quite knew what it was. And when they left, that was fine. And then when Alan came back from holiday, he went to the file to see if he could, um, you know, he wanted to keep that manuscript because it was important. And when he went to the file, it was gone. It was missing. No one knows where it went, but you know, I'm afraid that people have got to draw their own conclusions. It doesn't take much to work it out where it went. Um, and the only reason I could say that that happened is because it was the overriding evidence of who wrote the James Bond theme when it had to be, shall we say, lost or taken away or whatever for Monty Norman to maintain 
the rewards of his just desserts, or, or not, as the case may be. So that is the theory. The only real conclusion that people can come to on that is that his office took that away. What they did with it, where it is now, nobody knows. It never shut up again. And Alan, when, they, when he rang that company to find out what happened to it, they denied all knowledge. So it went missing. So that was really, I mean, if that was presented, had been presented in the 2001 court case at the Hyde Court when uh, the Monty Longman sued the Sunday Times for printing uh, the, uh, the fact or non-fact, we wouldn't call it, uh, that, that Barry wrote the, the James Bond theme. If that particular manuscript could have been reproduced at that trial, I think that would have been a different result. But of course, it wasn't because it couldn't be. So um, there you are. You seem to have a good relationship with uh, John Barry's secretaries, you know, anchors. How did he get involved with talking to, with John Barry's people, like a secretary and, and the people around him? Well, I used to work in central London at that time. In those days, when a movie was coming out, uh, you know where um, you would find a massive advert being pasted onto the, the station wall on the London Underground. So you see all the latest films coming out. And of course, the posters that were pasted on the wall in those days, they gave all the details of who was doing the music, etc., etc. And I've got to understand which record companies were releasing certain soundtracks because they used to be sort of linked. I don't know whether they had some sort of contract or agreement, but they were linked to certain record companies. If you saw a film came out, for instance, by Green Gems Columbia or Columbia Picture, the Columbia Picture would be, usually the music would be published by Green Gems Columbia Publishing, which was part of the Columbia Music Organization. And they would usually have a, a tie-up with one or two different record companies. So if you rang the film company, they could tell you who was going to issue the LP soundtrack. You'd ring the company up, which, which I did, because there was no other way of finding out, really. I'd ring the company up and say, are you planning to release the soundtrack of so-and-so boy? As it was, I did a lot of John Barry stuff. They said, yes, yes, it's coming out. So I started to get a hook on those sort of things, and I found out where to go or who to contact to find out the information that I wanted. I went to a concert once, a concert tour that John Barry did with Shirley Bassey for an impresario guy called Big Lewis. The show was on a, a road tour basis. They were in London, Cardiff, Birmingham, Nottingham, I think, Manchester. They did quite a few. And I went to the London one at the Odeon Leicester Square. And in the programme for that concert, there was an advertisement for place called Top Line Agency. Top Line Agency was in Great Newport Street in London, number 19, Great Newport Street. And that Top Line Agency was the original agency that John Barry's father, John Xavier Prendergast, owned and ran. The lady that worked for Jack was a lady called Zena Ackers. Now, Zena was handed the job of looking after John's affairs when he started to leave EMI and join Ember Records, who incidentally were at number 12, Great Newport Street, across the road. So I think where a connection came for John when he when he actually let EMI and joined Ember Records in 1963. I went in and uh, on the off chance, I saw the advert in the concert program, I went in to see Zena Actors and I introduced myself and I used to just drop in at odd intervals just to, to ask her what was happening, what he was working on, and et cetera, et cetera. And it got a sort of a, how can I put it, a friendly relationship. She was a lovely lady. I was in contact with her for about, oh, 25 years, something like that. And I used to go into the office in Great Newport Street and 
you go up to a little step into the office and there's a door there. Right in front of the door was a big grand, the back of a grand piano. The other side of the piano was a desk, believe it or not, <laughs> with a, a typewriter on it and one of those old lamps, you know, that went over the typewriter and one of the real old-fashioned royal typewriters, you know, of course, that was Zena's office, right? So she would be typing out, I don't know, all sorts of things like contracts or anything to do with the, with the music that, that the agency was dealing with, including all John Barry stuff. I would go in there, and every time I'd go in there, you know, she would always say, oh, can't see you now, dear. I'm very, very busy. I've got to get this stuff in the post. And because she had piles and piles of envelopes on top of the piano. The old envelopes used to go with string through the eyelets, you know, and then you'd tie them up, you know, and put them in the post, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, she used to always uh, be in a bit of a flap and a bit of a panic. Her image was that of a, a bit of a headmistress-type lady. She was uh, half rim glasses and always very efficient, but always in a bit of a fluster. And she would say to me, oh, I, I can't talk to you now, I can't tell you uh, anything at the moment, I don't know anything. I'm not, and got, she would always get used to getting a flap. After telling me she hadn't got time for me, she then died to chat for 45 minutes. So the, the theory about I haven't got time sort of went out the window. So, but I had a good relationship with her, and over the years, she used to ring me up in the end and uh, tell me that, oh, she, she just signed a contract with uh, to do a film. And, and one of them was quite, it was quite funny. She said that he signed up to do a film for um, Joseph Lomachie called Go Forth. I said, oh, okay, right. So I used to keep a note in my diary of all the films that were coming out so that I could keep a track of them. This Go Forth never came out. I didn't see it. But when I went back, I saw this. Uh, there was a film came out with the music in, which I didn't know about. It was called Boom, and it starred Leslie Taylor and Richard Burton and Noel Coward. And it was a, from a story by Tennessee Williams. I said, where does this film Boom come from? So, you know, what's that all about? She said, I told you about that. I said, no, you didn't. She just didn't. Is that Goforth? I said, oh, right. Because Goforth came from the, the name of the principal character in the film, played by Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor, where her name was Goforth. So that's where that title came from, because I've completely misconstrued that. So, I mean, anyway, I would slip this out. It wasn't coming. So uh, I lost that one. So, um, yeah. So it's one of the anomalies of the uh, of the industry, that suddenly they make a film and then change the title halfway through, and they could make you lose track of it, you know. Thank you.
talking about the 1960s, which schools stood out for you in the 1960s and what memories do you have like going to premieres of these films? Because I know you liked, you went to a number of James Bond premieres. Can you tell us about the stories you have for those and the films that stood out in the 1960s for, for John Barry, in your, your opinion? Um, one of the things that I always associate with the 60s, it, it gave birth to so many great soundtrack albums, music wise. Um, besides John Barry, I used to collect quite avidly the scores of Elmer Bernstein, Henry Mancini, and various others. I, I, if it was a good score, I bought it. I had a huge collection of LPs. I um, still do. The ones that stand out, I think, really, Bernstein, certainly The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven, Walk on the Wild Side, which I absolutely love. I think it was a fabulous score. The Mancini one, Two for the Road, Charade, Pink Panther, all that stuff. It was classic. It was a wonderful era to live through because every week, Literally, there was at least two or three soundtrack LPs coming out by various composers. It was a phenomenal period. So many albums, and you go into a record shop, and you go to the films and shows section, and there'd be a couple of hundred albums sitting in there, you know, at any one time. It was just great to go into a record shop and see what those albums are around. I bought things like the ones I just mentioned, the Mancini's and the Bernsteins and Maurice Charles, Lawrence Arabia, obviously later on Dr. Zhivago. I bought quite a few of them for de la Rue, Francis Lay, Michel Legrand, oh, you name it. I was, uh, you know, I, I had a huge collection. I still do. I still have a lot of those scores now. I grew up with them and they're part of my, what I regard as the soundtrack to my life because I can more or less remember where I was when I saw the film and when I bought the soundtrack. It's something that's quite nostalgic to me, really, because I more or less grew up with that. And it was, as I say, it was a great experience, really, because you saw the evolution, not, not only of the music and the movies, but the whole music industry seemed to take off in the 60s. Everything seemed to happen at once. It was a, a phenomenal period. There's so many things happened. Stereo sound, colour TV, colour leaders, you know. The Beatles, as Michael Caine once said, the Beatles ran the, the pop side and it was old John Barry who ran the um, the movie music. Very much in the 60s, John Barry was very much at the forefront of the evolution of film music in the 60s, very much so. And one of the things that I always admire about his particular scores is the range of films in different subjects that he rattled. He, he would abruptly turn around from doing something like a Midnight Cowboy to do something like The Lion in Winter or The Last Valley or something. And then you got the Bond films and the Press File and the Mac and, oh, the, and the range musically was quite stunning. The best thing I can say about John Barry in the 60s was you never knew what you were going to get next because it was just very likely to be something completely different to what went before. And it was, it was quite exciting, actually. Because you never knew what you were going to get. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting, very exciting period. One of the experiences I had in the 60s, I went to the Columbia Cinema in, I think it was Shaftesbury Avenue in the West End, to see a showing of King Rat. And uh, got to the part of the film at the end, about 20, 25 minutes before the end. Getting quite interesting, I'm just going to finish. And lo and behold, everything went black. It was a power cut. So at that point, the manager came in with the torch in his face, a bit splinky, and proudly announced that we've lost power tonight and are unlikely to get it back before in the next couple of hours. So, of course, 
everybody had to sort of leave the auditorium or the cinema and he said what you can do is keep the ticket and you can if you if you want to you can come back tomorrow night or the night after and see the film again at no charge so that's what i did i went out and i thought well gosh at the end of it was Derek finished so i went back in again the following night and uh, i saw it again uh, so i had the uh, two showings of king rat or should i say one and three quarters so basically good experience but uh, it wouldn't happen today of course because the old-fashioned cinema in those days it was a projector from the back of the cinema and you could see the beam of light going through the air hitting the screen showing the film not but it is there of course and of course the sound was way inferior but of course in those days you had nothing to compare it to so it didn't really matter i thought it was a great movie again it demonstrated john barry's versatility musically to adapt to any kind of film I mean, that was a good wartime prisoner of war story and uh, well acted with a great cast you know, a well-made movie.
one after that, I got an invite. Well, I say invite. I've got a, a ticket for the premiere of the Bond movie Thunderball, which was uh, quite exciting. One of the things I noticed uh, that went in there, and the, you're sitting in the in the audience, and uh, there's a that sort of buzz in the air. You know that people are not quite sure what to expect, how it's going to happen, and they're all talking, and you can hear them murmuring in the air above, you know. And then suddenly, as that music came up, the first few bars of the Bond theme, it was like somebody had sliced the air and just cut all the sound out, because, and they stopped talking all at the same time. It was quite, quite odd. It was like somebody turning off the sound on the radio or, or your TV, you know, instant stop. And we went, went up, and the film started. It was quite eerie, really. It makes you think you've lost your hearing or something, you know. And, um, yeah, that was, that was it, and that was the excitement of the, the Bond movie at that time. Another experience with a Bond that I can tell you about, a similar thing happened when I saw Goldfinger, um, previous to, to obviously the Thunderbolt, at the Hammersmith Odeon. I think I saw it on the second night, or second or third night or something. I got to Hammersmith to go and see this movie, and uh, I came out of the station to go to the cinema, and all these crowds of people, God, it was people everywhere. And there were police horses controlling the crowd. And I thought, what will happened here? And it's for to control the crowd for the queue to go to see the movie. And I reckon it must have there must have been about a good three quarters of those people outside there that didn't get in. I wonder the lucky ones I'd have picked to get up bought previously. But again, I got in there and the, and the same thing happened. You know, there was a lot of talking going on before the film started. But the, the, the thing that struck me in that movie is where, when the film started and people stopped talking and started suddenly take notice of what's on the screen. The thing that struck me most about Goldfinger for the movie when I first saw it was how what the effect was of those two opening bars of Goldfinger, the song. The way that it crashed onto the screen, it was similar to somebody throwing a couple of hand grenades at the screen. You know, bam, bam, it really threw you back in your seat. And you hear that lovely brass line in the middle, you know, that opens it, opens the soul. It was stunning. It was a stunning experience. I always remember that. Whenever I hear that song, I, I, I remember that moment because it really was iconic. You, you sat there and, you, and looking at the screen, and suddenly there's two bars, the two bars of the, of the song came up. Wow. It was something else.
I just enjoy that. I still watch Goldfinger now. It's one of the movies. I think one of my favourite movies, really. I just think that the Bond films at that time had the suave image of Sean Connery, which I don't really think has been surpassed to the Bond ever. I think, like most things, I think the original, the first one, was the most important one. And it's the one that makes him, that creates the impression and creates the part and creates the image. Sean didn't fantastic job in those films he really was top notch I, I really don't understand I've never understood it how we get to uh, look at the history of the Academy Awards and you don't find hardly a single Bond film in there for best film or best screenplay or best director or whatever or even come to that best song or best score today I find that some of the scores that get nominated for awards and win awards God you know, sorry, but oh, not for me. I think back on them and I'm, I'm thinking, how the hell does we, we have all the time in the world not get a nomination for Best Song? How did Diamonds of Forever or even Goldfinger not get a nomination? I'm not saying that should win, but not to get nominated? Incredible. Which was your favourite on film scores of the 60s? I can't say I've got a favourite. I love them all, to be honest. I, I, I play them all equally, listen to them all equally now. I suppose the one that and the best, if I had to make a choice of the best film, it would be between two and narrowly be for Russia with love. I love the story. I love the Robert Shaw's Red Grant and Lottie Lenyar and, and all the other people that the old Bond crew in there. It was just classic Bond film for me. It had a great story, really great story, based obviously on the original story by Ian Fleming. But yeah, and Goldfinger comes very closely behind. I like Diamonds of Rebel, but not quite so much. I, I, I found the first, from much with Love and Goldfinger and Thunderball, probably the best ones. Although I'm not overly keen on the underwater sequences of Thunderball. I found it a bit, to be honest, I found that a bit monotonous and a bit boring at the time. It, it goes on a bit too long for me. 
can I put it? It's not real action as such. It's slowed down because it's underwater. And it, I didn't find it exciting, but that's just me. move on could you tell us the price of a ticket to go and see the Thunderball premiere i think it was about 17 shillings and sixpence which was something in a region of 87 and a half p and the program at the brochure was i think three shillings which is 15p yeah and then something as well i'll take as well um i'll tell you something else that uh, i noticed in the 60s i went to the odeon haymarket to see the lion in winter when it first came out and in those days, a lot of the main big movies they would issue in the West End cinema the souvenir brochure, which are very collectible now. Uh, I've got various ones for Lawrence of Arabia, Doctor Zhivago, uh, Lion in Winter, Ball Tree, and a Bond One, and all the rest of it. But they were always on sale in the in the foyer, and I always bought one. And they're they're really well produced actually. But for Lion in Winter, it went a stage further. They actually sold the soundtrack LP as well in the cinema and when i went in i thought walk and i'm gonna buy that it was coming out i think on the following friday this is a tuesday night and they might have had some advanced copies so i thought oh, i thought what i'll go i'll, I'll buy one of those when i come out the cinema so um, i watched the film came out and i went to the lady that I, I saw selling them the lps before the film started 
I said, have you got any? She said, no, no. She said, we sold out. And they had something in the... I said, have they had? She had a, she, we said, we had about 300 copies. And they sold out. But one showing in the cinema field. And I couldn't get it. So I had to wait until it came out on a Friday in the shops. And, oh, dear. But I thought, really? Yeah. <laughs> I did obviously get it because uh, it, was, it was habitual. I bought everything that John Barry did in the, in the 60s. I mean, I, could, I don't think... It's pretty boring, really, but it always uh, surprises me when I see people on the John Barry Appreciation Society coming out and saying, oh, I've just, just found this soundtrack. I didn't know he did this, still." And I was thinking, crikey, I wish I could find something like that. Well, I didn't know, you know. I've just, I, I bought everything as it came out, and I had people looking out for me in case I missed something. And, and of course, my collection is pretty watertight on everything that he did. And I don't think there's anything that came out I haven't got. In a way, it's a shame because I miss out on the that excitement of finding something you haven't got, you know. It's, but, you know, hey-ho. <laughs>
Let's move down to the 1970s. And I know you went to a number of John Barry concerts in the 70s onwards. Can you have any memories of the early concerts you went to? The, the first concerts of John Barry that I went to were back in the 60s, actually. I, I will cover the 70s one, but it's important to tell you about the ones in the 60s. Um, there were the two roadshow uh, that he did with, um, with Shirley Bathy. Also on the same bill was Matt Monroe. John Barry did uh, the first third of the concert with a something in the region of, a, I think, about a 20-piece orchestra, so you know more than that. And he did a number of uh, standards. He did some film themes, and he did things like Man with a Golden Arm, Taste of Honey, Soul Bossa Nova, and things like that. He did a, a few well-known standards, Sing, 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 and he did a few big band numbers, and he does a Fernando and things like that. And then the, the second half was Matt Monroe. And Matt Monroe, at that point, the orchestra was conducted by a guy called Johnny Spence, who Barry worked with on the score for Elizabeth Taylor in London uh, in 63. And then in the last uh, third of the show was uh, with, with Charlie Bassey, with, um, with Barry conducting. But I saw two of those, uh, those concerts. Uh, yeah, they were very good. They were very well received. But the strange thing was, uh, I went to one of the concerts out of London, I think, I think it was in Cardiff because um, where Shirley Bassey was obviously brought up. And I went into the theatre to see the concert there and it was only three quarters full. And I think back on that now, that concert that night was not a sellout. You had Shirley Bassey, Matt Monroe and John Barry. And the concert wasn't a sellout. What would we be doing if that was today? You know, it'd be overbooked, wouldn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Um, you know, but, but it, was, it wasn't even full, and I'm, I was quite astonished. But that was the last time that I saw Barry in concert, the point of view of, of an audience concert. But I did have a rather amusing experience at the, the studios of BBC TV at Shepherd's Bush in the west part of London. It was a show that Barry did shortly after he joined Ember Records. Ember Records, I think, put a show together going to be televised. It was called Around Seven. Uh, it was John Barry conducting a, a six or seven musicians. And on the bill were singers like Annie Roth, Nina and Frederick, and I think Chad Stewart and Jeremy Clyde, who worked with Ember, were on it. And it was more of a showcase of the Ember artists at the time. Anyway, I found the studio where they were filming the show. When I stood outside, because you couldn't go in, it wasn't a one where you, you, you paid to go in, you got an audience. It was done in a closed studio with no audience there. So I stood outside, I was looking through the door towards where the stage was, where they were getting ready to do the show. And this chap came out, who was a commissioner. And he was one of these guys that there used to be in, in London at that time. They were a band of people called the Corps of Commissioners. They were ex-Nergy people that, you know, commissioner jobs on in front of offices or theatres and so on. And he came out to me, and uh, he's always a sergeant major type guy. And he said to me, um, "Can I, can I help you, sir?" I said, uh, um, "Well, yeah, thank you very much." He said, oh, well, "What exactly are you looking for?" I said, uh, "Well, I, I'm a big John Barry fan. I understand he's doing this show here tonight, and I just wondered what what was happening. You know, just out of interest, I came along." He said, uh, "Well, would you would you like to see the show?" I said, "Well, well yes, uh, you know, I was all sort." You know, lost the words, really. He yes, please. He said, well, look, just go in that door there. He said, we'll see a little bench about four or five feet long. He said, go and sit right in the corner. 
He said, it's hidden. It's very dark in the corner. You can sit there. He said, nobody will see you. He said, go and sit in the corner and just stay there. So I went in the corner of this seat. I stayed there and I watched the show for nothing. And I was the only person in the audience. It was me. It's John Barry working on with the with the artists and, you know, the cameramen and the, the floor people during the production and, and me. And I, I thought, this is surreal. Out on earth. I mean, it's one of those things when people said to me, how did you get in there? I said, well, I've always believed in one thing in life. If you don't ask, you don't get. I just went and I went on the off chance and they, there you go. I was on my own. No problem. And I went in. So that was my good fortune. That was the one time I saw John Barry at my own private concert. <laughs> and the next time I saw that, after that, I went to the 1972 Film Harmonic concert at the Royal Albert Hall that was held every October. And this was a series of concerts that went on for something like 15 years or so. And each year it was a charity concert for the Cinema and Television Benevolent Fund. And each year they invited various composers to come along and conduct the right music and conduct the role for the Munich Orchestra. First one in 1970 was uh, Ron Goodwin, Henry Mancini, Neil Matheson and Norma Bernstein. And the second one in 71 was uh, Maurice Shaw, Francis Lay, uh, Nelson Riddle and Frank Chaxfield. One thing that was very evident in that particular concert was Nelson Riddle did a, a long uh, medley of the, the songs and, and themes that he'd done with Sinatra. And it ended with a very jazzy, very upbeat version of I've Got You Under My Skin, played by the Royal Philharmonic. And I'm not kidding you, to say the whole place was swinging is an understatement. It was phenomenal arrangement, and it just brought that house down. At the end, it was the very end of the concert, and at the end, the whole audience in the place were on their feet applauding. It's gone on record as being the longest ever applause in the Royal Albert Hall. Nothing has gone on as long as that. And it went on and on and on. And I understand I'm thinking, he's, he's got finished in a minute. It just went on. It was just incredible. And I recorded it and put it on a record. I've got a record at home here, you know. I went to that and I went through the concert. 72 was Miklos Rocha, um, followed by Mr. Barry, which I went through, obviously. Um, Good concert, and he premiered the music in that one from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And on the stage, in their costumes, came Fiona Fulton and Michael Crawford. So, uh, yeah, that was quite amusing at the time. I think John uh, introduced them, and he said, in case you don't readily recognise them, uh, this is Fiona Fulton and Michael Crawford. There, of course, she was in her Alice costume, and he was in his white rabbit costume. Yeah, like comical, really. But, um, yeah. Yeah, and it went on for oh, about 15 years. I mean, there were so many different composers that followed on from that. Nino Rocha, that uh, was a very memorable experience because that's the only time I've ever seen Nino Rocha in concert. Michel Legrand, Francis Lay, Jules Delarune, John Williams, Kerry Goldsmith, loads of them came and, and did this concert. It was something I really looked forward to every year. I went to every single one for 15 years. And it's sad, really, that we can't do that now. I feel now, you know, if we had a series of concerts like that now. What music would you play from today's films in a concert like that? When you talk in terms of all those great composers I've just mentioned, the themes they've left behind, you could stage 20 concerts and still not cover it all. 
it was phenomenal. Um, but I, I feel today, I, if, if, if I was getting into film music today and looking to follow it as an interest, like I've done for the last, what is it, 50 years or whatever it is, then I don't think today, I don't think it would have the same effect. I don't think it would attract me to bother about going out and finding out about other music by other composers. I just think today film music has lost its way, totally. I don't hear, even on TV, you don't hear TV themes anymore, other than for EastEnders and Coronation Street, what have you got? Um, you know, there's there's nothing else. I always remember Jerry Goldstein saying in a concert, when he was asked to do the uh, the, the theme for the Waltons, he said, I want them you to compose a tune that when the ladies got out in the kitchen to put the cap on for a cup of tea during their commercial break, or, or she's just about to make a cup of tea before the, the show comes on, I want you to compose a piece of music that says... Uh, Oh, hang on. I recognise that. That's the Whartons starting. And you've got this chin. And he knew what it was because they needed it. Back, I think we've lost that. I think we've lost that identity. I just I just look at some of the composers today and I think if you were going to do a, a great movie sounds of whoever, what the hell would you put on it? What would you put on the great, great movie sounds of Hans Zimmer? Um, I'd be hard pushed, to be honest. I mean, he, he has done some beast stuff in the path a bit here and there. But... The scores doesn't do it for me. It doesn't have the same magic with going out and buying a Bernstein's The Great Escape or Barry's Goldfinger or The Knack or something like that. No, it doesn't give me that excitement. I've played any more film music today. Um, it, it's sad to say it, but uh, I, I find that, I mean, I look at some of these TV shows and all you hear is electronic sounds. You don't hear any, any themes. You don't hear any tune. They've forgotten what it is to write, to write a tune. It's crazy, really, but it's it's disappointing to me that I got to hear a lot more movie things, but you're not going to hear them anymore, don't think.
You mentioned earlier about Frank Sinatra, and I think you told me there's a story you have about his participation of sorts in Moonraker. Can you tell us all about that? I was always very fortunate in as much that I got quite a few invitations to quite a few things. I used to work for the Daily Mirror newspaper in London, and I worked there from 1971 until 1988. And I used to have connections with journalists, some of which wrote for cinema reviews, film reviews, stage show reviews, etc., and advertising guys who actually uh, negotiated with the agencies to place the adverts in the newspapers for the various films that came out in the cinema. One of the films, of course, was Moonbreaker, and I was lucky enough, I said to a guy that was uh, talking to an advertising agency that handled the advertising for Moonraker, an agency called Osborne Group Advertising, and I said, is there a press show? He said, yeah. I said, is there any chance of a ticket? He said, yeah. Here you a ticket for the press show. And I said, so I got a ticket for the press show of Moonraker, which was on a Monday morning at the Dominion Cinema in Tottenham Court Road in the West End of London. I went in there. I spotted going in Cena Ackers, who was with Lewis Gilbert. He was uh, one of the James Bond producers, people that John Barry worked closely with. Anyway, I saw the film and I bucked into Zena. And she was with um, Lewis Gilbert afterwards. Um, I think they were meeting up with somebody rather for uh, a lunch or something. But I met them very briefly in the foyer after the film. And I said, oh, hello, Jean. I didn't know you were going to be here. What's, um, what do you think of the film then? She said, well, she said, it's all right. I said, oh, I enjoyed it. I said, I love the music. Oh, she said, don't mention the music. I said, why? She said, oh, he's ever so upset with the the sound and the, and the way it came across and shit, it, it, it isn't what he wanted to hear in the movie. I think that what we all know now is the mix. It was the mix of the sound that uh, was done in mono as opposed to stereo and it didn't sound as good and Barry was very upset by that. I said, well, yeah, what did she think there? She said, and, uh, she said that song, and she, he said, she, he nearly gave up with it in the end. I said, what happened then? He said, well, he said, that awful man, Sinatra, he wanted to run the place. He wanted to take the song and take it back to America and, and then go and record it in his studio with his musicians, his orchestra, his musical director. He wants uh, them to arrange it in a way that he wants so that he can sing it the way he wants to sing it. And and she said it just didn't work. And, and, and John simply turned around to him and said, sorry, Frank, but I'm the man who's put in charge of the music for the Bond film and the person that does the recording does the arrangement, conducts the orchestra and everything, is me. And that's not with the James. And he was backed up by Cubby Broccoli. Um, evidently, that Zena told me that Cubby got involved in the end, but he got a bit heated. And with that, Sinatra said, well, if I, I either do it my way or I don't do it. Told the come. That was the end of that. And then we had this, there the other thing that went on about the Johnny Mathis thing. I, mean, I don't know quite what went on in that one. Um, Venus tended to think that the, the problem with it was that Mathis's voice didn't suit the film and the song. It didn't come across uh, plainly and simply, and that was the reason that he was dropped. It was nothing to do with the performance or the song or the lyric or anything else. It was to do with the fact that it just didn't sound right. They didn't do it. So in the end, then Barry went to go off and he thought, oh, it's another... On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and I'm going to be doing an instrumental thing. So he went off to uh, Beverly Hills, and I think he went off to do something at another film, I think, or the side about it. He was in a hotel there, and we know the rest because he, 
bumped into Shirley Bassey, and he was halfway through writing an instrumental theme. Now, I don't know what that theme was, whether it's the actual the eventual song that Bassey recorded or not, I don't know. But according to Zena, he was writing an instrumental theme, and he did complete it. Now, there was a demo recording of it. Now, I don't know what it was, because no one has ever heard it. Whether or not it's laying around in one of the Bond Empire's archives or something, I really don't know. But um, that never came to fruition because he bumped into Shirley and the rest is history. They did the song together with uh, Hal David doing the lyrics. So um, that's the story behind that. Now, that contrasts quite greatly, I have to say, with various publications that have been put out over the last couple of years um, on the subject of the James Bond music, and I have to say, when I read the write-ups on that, I thought, really? Why is it I had a completely different story to you? Because Lena Ackers at that time was very close to knowing what happened. Because she was the person that he confided in. She was the person that he told, and he used to, if I want a better word, cry on her shoulder when things went wrong. He would come in and say, oh, God, I'm fed up with this, because so and so and so. And, and he'd, he'd have a discussion with her in the offices. And um, that was something I think she knew a lot more about him than she would let on. I think when she told me that story about the Moonraker song, I think it's pretty accurate. But she's, she'd had no reason to tell something that's not totally the truth. But she was told the story and she just related it to me. And, uh, I never saw it reproduced anywhere else in any publications, any newspapers or magazines or or anything. So that's what she told me. I presume it's true. I had no way of telling because I'm not, I didn't witness anything. So other than what she told me. So um, there you have it. That's the story.
I've noticed that you've visited a number of recording sessions of John Bowie. How did that come about? And who did you meet on those recording sessions? Right. Now, uh, it was a rather a lucky break, really. In 1997, I celebrated my 50th birthday. My wife was wanting to fix up something special for me to do to celebrate that, basically. So what she did, she wrote to Abbey Road Studio. And because I found out, I can't remember how I found out, but I found out that John Barry was recording at Abbey Road in April 1997. He was doing a score to a film called Swept from the Sea, which had several titles. The first title originally was called Amy Foster. The film starred Rachel Vise, um, Kathy Bates, Ian McKellen, and quite, a, quite an all-star cast. It was based on a Joseph Conrad short story. It was a, a score that John was recording with the English Chamber Orchestra. Anyway, I deviate. Um, my wife wrote to Abbey Road. They wrote back to her saying, well, it's not really a good idea to write to us because we have no control over John Barry's movements, etc. If you write to the English Chamber Orchestra and this lady, then um, you might find they had more success. So she wrote to this lady at um, the English Chamber Orchestra, who was the um, orchestra manager, actually. She wrote, I was getting ready to go to work in the morning and um, I living in Devon at the time. That's where I used to live at that time. From the postman delivered the post and there's a letter from the English Chamber Orchestra saying a lady called Pauline Gilbertson, who was the manager of the orchestra, she very kindly wrote to me and wrote to us to say that she'd spoken to John Barry and he'd be very happy for you to come along and sit in on the sessions for Fret from the Sea for the, the last three days of recording. So uh, I booked a little hotel, which was uh, in London, locally to Abbey Road. And I beautifully uh, turned up the following day at Abbey Road and I was shut into the studio and I was sitting outside the uh, control box. There's a, a black leather chair. You will see that black leather chair. There's a bit of a, a movie was shot with Richard Attenborough when Barry did the music for the film Chaplin, well, 30 years ago now. And uh, in the camera shop, you can see that black leather chair just outside the sound box where the engineers and everybody sits. And I said, I'm sitting on that chair now, watching them set up the orchestra and the morning's work. And that was quite an education in itself because they, the, uh, the system that they worked to at that time was a big screen at the back of the studio, which showed the film, no soundtrack, obviously. And the orchestra in front with um, Barry on the podium, and he used a, a system called Click Track. Click track was a very complex system. It involves obviously a click, which comes on the sound of the film. And at the click is the point where the music is about to start five seconds later. So when you hear the click on the screen, there's a downbeat of five, goes for five, four, three, two, one, and then dot flashes. And that that dot is when you start to conduct the music. At that point, the clock in front of John on the podium starts to go around and that should be moving in line and in time with the music on the score. So you've got to get the music on the score at a certain point by a certain time by using the clock. And also on the screen, you've got the clock ticking down as to how long that piece of music is. So the pace of having your eyes in three places at work, it's a very highly skilled job because not only do you have to do that, you have to be able to listen to the music the way it's being performed. Is it what you want? 
I saw John use the click track and I thought, Michael, there's a lot more to it than just writing music and just recording. And to watch that being done was a, 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 big, a big thrill. When I was sitting on the outside, at the start of the day, I sat on the outside of the soundbox on the chair and John came up to me and he said, you must be Ian. And of course, you know what you're like, you know, you, you get you get to a situation like that and you suddenly, you, you get sort of lost for words. You, you're sort of making up, well, making sort of a stuttering response, you know, it's a bit embarrassing really, but um, not usually like me, I'm not usually like that, but uh, anyway, yes, that's me, yes, thank you very much for asking me, etc. He said, yeah, it's great, he said, I said, you won't have a chance to um, talk to you now, he said, but at the end of the day, we have a little chat, so I said, oh, that's great, thank you. So uh, I brought, brought my camera, and of course, um, an LP to sign, which was the last valley. I uh, watched the day's proceedings, which was very interesting, and during that time, that day, who came into the studio, it was a bit like a hotel, really. We had uh, Don Black, David Arnold, Jane Seymour, Martin Kane, and the director of the film was a lady. Uh, she was there anyway. It was quite um, bizarre, really, because on the first day I was there, she had just uh, given birth to the baby daughter. She was sitting at the sound desk with John Richards, the sound engineer, and John Barry going through the music to see how it fitted the film and the scene and so on. And while they were all doing that, she was breastfeeding her child. And it, it was quite bizarre, really. And I just thought, it's just really odd. You know, I saw uh, a bit of the, the, the real skill of scoring a movie because there was a scene they were discussing. And I think it's the scene at the start of the film, and it showed. Lateral Boyd, who played the part of Amy, standing on top of a cliff top on the North Cornish coast, pointing out to sea to explain to the child where his father came from. John Barry had to portray in music the fact that she was telling a story to the son. And when this music was playing, the music was going over the top of the sound of the surf. So it didn't quite sound right. And John said, that's wrong. So he went out and he said, I don't know like that. Like, he said, that sound of the music should be underneath the main sound track of the film. It should be over the top. He went out to a guy who played a synthesizer and he took the scroll to him and he said, can you play this and take it up an octave lower? Well, I said, yeah, no problem at all, yeah. So he went out and they did the track again. This time it took out, I think it's about five or six string players and a harp or something. And they didn't play, but instead... The synthesizer took over and, and did that part for them. And when he came back into the sound room and they played that piece of music back, the very same piece of music on the same scene, you wouldn't believe the difference. It was suddenly, you think, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what should be happening. Because you heard the surf, but the music was underneath, so to speak, sound-wise. It wasn't drowning it. It was letting the sound effect of the scene take over. That was really a touch of genius, you know. He seemed to hear musically exactly what he needed to do to change that scene and the effect of the music in it. That was quite stunning. During that day, all these people came in. I can remember he was sitting at the sound desk with his back to the um, the door where people walk in and out. And he was talking with John Richards and Michael Caine walked in and he was clapping his hand. Oh, lovely piece of music, John. Wonderful, you know, fantastic. And of course, John did no more. I say, Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? You know, he knew it was straight away, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, he sat down, and Michael Kane sat down next to me, and uh, he started chatting to me about why I was there and everything, you know, celebrate my 50th birthday and so on. But um, 
when I got there, first of all, Laurie, uh, John's wife, um, she asked me a few questions. Uh, Why are you here? You know, um, what's the background to all this? You know, and I was a bit nervous, really, because um, I wasn't quite sure, you know, what was going to happen next. I thought I might have been told to leave or something. I told them my fiftieth birthday and written to the orchestra, and John invited me out, which I'm great. So anyway, I sat down next to Laurie, and she was sitting there and watching proceedings. And next thing I know, she says to me, um, like a cup of coffee. And she gets up, makes me a cup of coffee. <laughs> I think, you know, lovely, it's lovely lady. And um, uh, we, we had quite a chat. She asked me where I lived and what I did for the job and how I came about being an enthusiast of John's music, etc., etc. So I told him the story. It's quite astonishing, really. I don't think either of them are really aware there's people like me about. But yes, it was a lovely day. And at the end of the day, Laurie said to me, have you, have you put your camera on? I said, yes, I have. She said, well, come out, let's go out and see John and we'll take some photographs. So I have a, a photograph now on my, on my wall here, taken on the podium of uh, Abbey Road, of me and John together, um, shaking hands um, at that, that see, recording session. That is obviously uh, a very treasured photograph. You know, uh, very special day, very special experience. And at the end of the third day, um, when it was all finished, John had to rush off to um, the record company because they were going to negotiate the soundtrack album or something. And uh, Laurie, before she, before they left, uh, Laurie turned around to me and said, well, lovely to meet you. If you're in London again when we're recording here, you'd be very welcome to pop in. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, so I ended up going to, um, to go back to the last day of seeing the album Eternal Echoes recorded with the English Train Orchestra again, where I um, I had another chat with a nice young gentleman called Nick Rayner, I'm sure you know. Nick at that time obviously was John's orchestrator, but uh, later he uh, recorded a number of, you probably realise, a number of John Barry's scores with the City of Prague Philharmonic, pretty good recordings too. And uh, I had a quite a nice long chat with Nick, and uh, then we had lunch, and there was one um, amusing episode, there was a, very lovely gentleman in an English chamber orchestra called Quintum Ballardi. Quintum was, or Quinley was he, as he was called, was the principal first violin on the ECO. And uh, he had this very laid back, a very grandfatherly type person, a very well built, so we say well built gentleman with uh, long white hair. Not, not shoulder length, but long. And he, just as the orchestra is going to start to play, he would just about ring his bow up to the instrument to start. And we broke for lunch at that day about one o'clock and there's a canteen that not far from outside the studio. There's a full and full canteen there and get a full meal and everything. And uh, I was in the queue with him and I said, Queen, I said, you have me worried a few times there. I thought, can you start in that music? I thought you were going to miss the start. And I, and I said, you were, you were so laid back about it, you know, you just had me a bit worried. And he looked at me and he went, well, he said, my boy, he said, I've been doing this now for 39 years and I never missed the start yet. It was lovely. And I sat down in that restaurant and we got a bit of lunch and I was joined by two ladies. One was Laurie Barry with John Patrick, John's son, Roger Laurie's son. And the other one was Barbara Buckley. And they both sat down there and they're chatting away. You know, like you, you get two mums talking about family and Zoom kids. And they're chatting away, and it was surreal. And I was sitting there, and they were asking me about myself and my life from 
my children and what have you, you know, like my, my words and all the rest of it. And it was, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking with Barbara Broccoli and Lloyd Barry talk about that. And it just, it was a bit of a dream. It was something, you know, really, it felt odd. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it just felt odd. I found it hard to believe I was doing it, to be honest. I thought I might have been dreaming or something, but it wasn't. But, you know, that's what it felt like. And it was a great experience because there were some great people there to talk to. One of the guys that, that was instrumental on the days that John Barry recorded with the English Chamber Orchestra, one of the things that was very instrumental was his fixer was a guy called Christian Rutherford. And Christian was a great-grandson of the famous actress Margaret Rutherford, who was in the Miss Marple's films, and uh, I think she was in Airport as well, the 1970 movie of Airport. Uh, amongst other things, and uh, he's a great-grandson, and Christian was the fixer of the orchestra, so he fixed up how many players we have in the orchestra, how many violinists, how many percussionists, and so on and so forth. There were several lovely people to talk to that day, because the one guy that played on the print horns, and he made a comment, he said, do you know what, he said, I, I love playing this guy's music, he said, but when I'm finished at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. Why? He said, well, if you've noticed, John Barry's scores nearly always had French horns at some point. He said, and they always are asked to play very high notes. He said, hitting a high note on a French horn is bloody hard. He said, it takes so much energy. And when you're asked to play, he said, you're not playing a short piece, you're playing a long piece, and you're playing it at a full blast. He said, you're still absolutely knackered when you're finished. And I said, well, what are you doing now? He said, oh, I've got to clean up the instrument. I said, put it all the way in the music case. I said, well, is that you're finished for the day now, are you? He said, no, no, no. He said, I'm going off down to um, one of the radio, the BBC radio studio to, to play for the BBC radio orchestra. So he was off to another session. But in between, he takes the French horn and the instrument to bits, cleans it all, puts it back in the case. And when he gets to the next venue, he takes it all out, puts it back together again. I felt complete, you know, it was quite amazing, uh, amazing experience to see that all done and um, meet those people. It seemed that John Barry had this attraction that whenever he's writing the score for a film, the people that are connected with it and acting in it want to see him recording the music. And Jane Seymour, when she came in, came in with Rachel Rise. And as we know, Rachel Rise is married to Daniel Craig, but I'm not sure she was then, she is now. But Rachel was quite, uh, obviously, a lot younger then. And, yeah, she was a, a nice, friendly girl. And everybody, when you're in there, nobody treats you like a stranger. They all want to ask who you are, why you're there. Well, tell me about yourself, sort of thing. And they're all very interested in you. It was a lovely experience to do those things.
lastly, on the recording session side, I got a phone call because I, I made a bit of a friend or Christian rather, but um, he used to ring me up and he was the one who told me about the, the session for Eternal Echoes. But he did ring me uh, a year or so later and he said, I'm sure you'd be interested to come along to this. He said, uh, John's been asked to rescore the end titles of a film called Enigma. You've been in Amsterdam recording it with the concertabout in Amsterdam, but evidently the, the director of the movie, Enigma, um, had decided to change the ending. So it meant that the ending had to be rescored. The problem was that Harry couldn't fit it into his schedule and they couldn't hire the studio in Amsterdam to do it because uh, the, the agreement was for a certain period of time and that time had elapsed and there was another booking for another orchestra to come in and do something else in that studio. So what happened was that John had to contact Christian Rutherford, get the English train orchestra together and he booked them in to re-record the end titles of Enigma at the Angel Studios in Islington, North London. And uh, I got asked to go to that very much smaller studio, but nevertheless, uh, the, the recording went well. And uh, lo and behold, that turned out to be, quite sadly, when they finished that, it turned out to be the very last time that John Barry would conduct music to film. That was the last time when he, when he walked out of the studio, that was, that was it. And nobody, of course, realised that at the time. You know, it was, it was in some ways very sad now I look back on it. Nobody, um, I think someone said to him on the way out, see you next time, John, you know, I look forward to working with you again. And he turned around and he said, yeah, maybe. Very telling words. Um, wasn't to be. It didn't happen, did it? And uh, Not at all. So um, that's that, really.
how do you feel John Barry was treated towards the end of his career? Because I noticed a number of his scores were rejected in that time. Yeah, I, I, I think it... I'm not sure about that. I don't know an awful lot about it, to be honest. I didn't. I wasn't party to any of the information as to why he turned down various jobs. I think he fell out of love a bit with the movie scoring industry when things changed. I, I remember him doing an interview with Aidan Gormley of um, RTE in Dublin when he was uh, doing. A, he did a, they did a concert in 2008, which Nicholas Dodd conducted, and he was interviewed um, by Aidan Gormley, lady. Um, who worked for RTE and he was asked about state of music and film and I, I remember him coming up with a very telling statement he said that there are many great composers and great musicians working in the film today and they're writing some great music but what they're not writing is great melodies and he said that's a part of the movies for me that has always got to be there and you have to have a central theme that you're going to work and if you look at Barry's scores usually you can get a theme and you can run it through the film in various places but you hear little snatches of it here and there um, and it gels the thing together and I think when directors started to meddle if you like if you want a good example think about the James Bond films separating the, the song from the score and um, you remember with Goldfinger and Thunderball the theme reappeared in the film the song you know, the melody of the song reappeared in the film several times. And that's that was the way Barry worked. And when that was taken away and the demand for music in film was such that the melodic theme and the, if you like, the commercial theme was no longer required, I think he found out of luck with it a bit. I think he thought, well, that's not what I want to, want to do anymore. It's something I don't want to be associated with. And I think at that point, maybe his health was spanning a little bit. I'm not sure. And I think he might have felt, you know what, this is the time I think I've had enough of it. And uh, he went on to do um, a couple of things. I think he did, did, he did the stage musical Brighton Rock with Don Black. He did a concert at the Albert Hall with the antennas. But for intents and purposes, it faded a bit from there, um, sadly. I'd have liked to see him score a few more films, and I understand he was offered a few more films, but I don't know whether the energy was there at the end. I think... I think uh, but I, I was doing really. I mean, you get to an age in life where the zest goes. You know, the, it's the energy. I mean, to his great credit, John Williams is what ninety now, and yeah. I mean, it's astonishing what he's doing. I greatly admire that man. Man, I really do. He's really. I think. I think he's only one of two of the greats from the sixties still surviving, and himself and Lonnie Shepherd maybe. And I, and I think that's it. And fuck him. Do you think how sad is that? Is it? All these guys that I grew up with are now no longer with us. It's uh, very, very sad, really. What, in your opinion, made John Barry stand out from other composers? The one thing I always think he had more of than anybody else, especially in this period between, what, 1963 and 1970, maybe, was the originality and the range of, of films that he scored and the range of music that he wrote. I mean, oh, you know, Bond, Lion in Winter, Walkabout. Um, I know Walkabout was maybe in the 70s. Midnight Cowboy. Just a range of movies, different scores, different styles. As I said earlier, you never knew what you were going to get with John Barry because all the films were different and diverse subjects. And, of course, he would always 
when scoring a movie, make sure that he understood exactly what that movie needed. And that, I think, was his great gift. He was a great musical dramatist. He could paint the characters in music. He could create the mood of the film. He could connect with the film and the script and the story. And the music, you would think, you know what? Nothing else would have fitted. That is absolutely perfect. I mean, if you hear the main title to Body Heat, for instance, I know that's the 80s, but you listen to Body Heat, you listen to, to Born Free, you listen to The Bond, nothing else would have fitted. That is perfect. It's a wonderful gift to be able to just dramatically turn around and do something completely different with his next job. You know, when you went from Midnight Cowboy to Lion in Winter. What a contrast. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, I know you've got a whole load of John Barry music, more or less nearly 99.9% of what he wrote. Of all that music, which one, if you were tied to a chair and somebody demanded of you to say this, which one is your favourite? Well, if they tied me to a chair, I'd do my damnedest to get out of it. Because basically, I honestly can't answer that question. The reason I say that is on the John Barry Appreciation Society, we regularly have polls as to what is your favourite this and what is the best of that. And I sit there and I hold my head in my hands and thinking, how the heck can these people say that's their favourite? Because I, I just like them all. I can play anything that Barry's done. And I'm, I'm probably biased and I fully admit to that, but I can play anything that John Barry has written or recorded and enjoy it because I understand the medium and, and why it's what it is. If you understand what the music is conveying and the story behind the music, you can appreciate it. That's why I don't have favourites. I can play any of them and enjoy them, but I enjoy them for what they are. Yes, there's some that some people will say are better than others. They might like out of Africa. They like, like um, Midnight Cowboy. I mean, really and truly, I love them all. I haven't got favourites. I can just play anything. I mean, I, I've got a friend who um, is absolutely a raving fan of Beat Girl. Loves it. He nearly plays it every day. And I play it quite regularly because I like it. And incidentally, it's very historical as well, Pete Girl, because that was the first time that the music from a British film had been put on an LP record. That was the first time. Another landmark in John Barry's career is he's got a lot of firsts in his career. But yeah, um, I haven't got any, I haven't got really haven't got any favourites. So I've got some I like more than others and maybe some I play more than others, but I do play them all.
And finally, what, in your opinion, is John Barry's contribution to the development of film music? I think he came into film music at a very important time. It was a very revolutionary time because it was the time when Very Town came about. Film themes were becoming popular and it needed composers to come in and write a tune and write a theme that people come out of the cinema with it in their head. I think he contributed greatly to that because I can remember once going down the, the underground escalator at Leicester Square Station one night and I'd just been to see the Quiller Memorandum film with George Siegel in and the, the theme for that was a, a tune which was later called Wednesday's Child. It was recorded by Matt Monroe as a vocal and a very, very attractive melody. And I was on the escalator going down to pick my train home. The guy came by me and he was going, and I thought, hello, he's been to the film. But the theme was in his head. And when he came out, it was in there. It was in his head. And I've done that. I went to see The Great Escape. And I came out with that march, that theme on the Bernstein note. You know, I, I came out of the cinema that night, a very long film, and I missed the last bus home. So I walked. But all the time I was walking, I wasn't walking, I was marching. Because going through my head was that theme. <laughs> and I never got home so quick. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll give you one, one theory behind that, my opinion. And uh, I, I put this forward when I attended a, a seminar at the Angel of Studio back in 2017 when um, Nick Rain and uh, David Arnold and um, were there. I remember getting up and saying, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you gentlemen on the platform agree with me here, but my own personal opinion is that film music has lost its way because what I've been used to seeing in the past when I watch a film, when I watched a movie in the 60s, the first thing to hit the screen at the start of the film was all the credits. And the credits of who's in it, who directed it, produced it, blah, 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 and who, who composed the music and all the rest of the credits that go behind it. While they're putting credits over, guess what they played? With a lovely big theme. And you think, oh, I love this. It's listening to the theme while they're playing the credits. Now, suddenly, credit sequences, now they come at the end. What a load of... Because... But frankly, if you have your theme at the start of the film, it's like your front cover of your book. And then you can start to then spread that theme in various forms throughout the movie and use it so that at the end, when they play that theme one more, one more time, that's why that guy came out of the cinema, going down the escalator on the underground, humming the tune because he'd been hearing it all the way through the film. Um, and, and, and that's missing. I mean, when I went to see Dunkirk, I saw Dunkirk and I thought there, I said, you know what? This is the longest pre-credit sequence I've ever seen. Lasted the whole film. You know, I, I thought, well, where's the credits? Where's the music? You know, did I just sat there and I thought, when I think of all the great war films and the great themes, I mean, uh, one theme I used to really like, didn't come out on record for a very long time, was in with Bernstein and the music from the bridge of Remagen. That's a good thing. Never came out until it went on the CD. Only Wayne Ward about 20, 30 years after the film came out. Which subject That theme was at the front of the film. You know, I mean, like the other week I watched um, The Magnificent Seven. And you hear that theme over the main credits. My God, blows your mind. God, I miss that greatly. I really miss it. We have all 
Suddenly for me and suddenly for many other people as well, he didn't have all the time in the world out John. He passed on in the level, which was um, a very a very sad day for me. Which I still remember each year, as I do a lot of other members of our John Barry Appreciation Society. And uh, to be honest, um, without the man's path and give me, especially me, I mean, from my point of view, many great memories, that music will live on for tens of years, no question. It's great stuff. I'm a great composer. Ian McDonald, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your reminiscences of the work of John Barry and your stories. It's been a real pleasure having you on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jason, for having me on. I, I've also, I really, really, really enjoy it. I always enjoy telling the stories, reminiscing, remembering, and I hope all your listeners enjoy it too. And if you want to hear more, you know where to find me. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our chat with John Barry fan, 
Ian McDonald on Talking Soundtracks on his Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. Just to say at this point, the Talking Soundtracks theme was composed by David Cassina. I'll leave you today with another favourite piece from the vast John Barry collection of Ian McDonald. It is The Last Valley, the title track from the soundtrack of the 1971 classic historical adventure starring Michael Caine and Omar Sharif. My thanks again for Ian McDonald for joining us on Talking Soundtracks on his Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And until we meet again for me, Jason Drury, it's take care and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. 
And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>